You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I was at the 2008 AMA Medical Communications Conference in San Diego, where I had the opportunity to speak with several notable figures and pioneers in the field of medical communications. We're talking about the Brain Trust Program. I'm speaking today with Dr. Larry McCleary, a prior practicing pediatric neurosurgeon and author of the book, The Brain Trust Program. Welcome to our program. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're at the 2008 AMA Medical Communications Conference in San Diego. What brought you to this conference specifically? Well, it was really, for me, a foray into a field that was unknown to me. And I look forward to networking with a lot of the people who are experts in the field of medical communications. I have been a practicing neurosurgeon in the past. I no longer practice pediatric neurosurgery. I have written a book called The Brain Trust Program, and I wanted to network with some people in the field. Tell us a little about your background and the motivational origins, if you will, for having written this book recently. Well, as a pediatric neurosurgeon working at a pediatric hospital, Denver Children's Hospital, I was asked to provide surgical care for children with very sick brains. And what that means is children with brain tumors, children with increased pressure on the brain from hydrocephalus, trauma, hemorrhages, and a number of other things that were either beyond their control or that they were born with. And as a surgeon, I was able to follow these children long-term, longitudinally in time. Most of the kids I saw needed surgery, although not all of them. And I had the uh, privilege of working with some great doctors in the Department of Rehab Medicine at Denver Children's. And together, we wanted to improve the outcome of these kids. And what that meant was that we wanted them to recover faster and recover more completely. So many, many years ago probably two decades now, we started looking at the role of nutrition and brain health in children with sick brains. And we found that at that time, the sugar water IVs that we were using were not what we thought were optimal support mechanisms to act as nutrition for these kids. So we started researching other avenues of health for these sick brains. And that really is what got me into other lifestyle choices and brain health. Give us some alternative options for addressing these problems that you've looked into that kind of went into the origins of this book, for instance. Well, we used things back then that are commonly used now, such as B vitamins and some amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. But what really struck our interest was that the brains of sick kids couldn't efficiently use glucose, which is the normal substrate that the brain uses to generate energy. So we were looking in options for the brain. And one of them was ketone bodies, which is a product that is a partial metabolite of fat. And most people, when they think about nutrient sources, think about fat, protein, or carbohydrate. And ketone bodies are overlooked. But from a brain health perspective, we found that they were easily metabolized by the brain and they could be used by sick brains even when glucose was not an option. So we provided medium-chain triglycerides, which the body turns into ketone bodies, and saw a dramatic jump in uh, the recovery curve. So ketogenic diets in particular you found? Well, 
Ketogenic diets, as being a pediatrician yourself, you know that they're used in the treatment of children who have intractable epilepsy, and that seizure disorders that don't respond or respond poorly to medications. And that usually is a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. And while we didn't put these children on high-fat diets, we provided them with a ketogenic precursor in the form of medium-chain triglyceride oil. And we can give that intravenously, and we can provide it enterically as well. What did you find from this pursuit? Well, what we found is that the children recovered faster and recovered more completely, and we used children who we had treated previously without the medium-chain triglycerides and the other nutritional support as the control group. We also looked at electrical recordings and some other physiologic parameters to assess the difference. Did you find any significant outcomes there? We did. We saw, in addition to lower seizure frequency, we saw improved function. And it was interesting because we correlated that with uh, recovery curves that were generated by the family members who knew the kids before they were injured, which as doctors, we in general didn't have that luxury. Was there any ability to do any longer-term follow-up for these kids as well? Well, they're all being followed at Denver Children's Hospital right now. Great. Any impending publications uh, that we can expect from that? There are publications and there are impending publications. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your book specifically, the Brain Trust Program. I understand from a basic level, it's a scientifically based three-part plan to, as you put it, improve memory, elevate mood, enhance attention, a couple other things, alleviate migraine and uh, menopausal symptoms, and even boost mental energy. Can you describe some of the basic aims, the objectives and goals that you had in writing this book? There were several incentives for me to get interested in this material for the lay public. I've published a number of professional papers, but in my training program, there were neurologists and there were neurosurgeons. And I chose to be a neurosurgeon because 20, 25 years ago, that was a profession that, at least in my eyes, was able to fix things. Neurologists, I perceived as being the best diagnosticians on the planet. But once they arrived at a diagnosis, there frequently was very little they could do. That's why I went into surgery. What was interesting to me 20 years later, meaning modern day neurology and neurosurgery, is that there are now many more interventions that can be used to help healing sick brains. And medical research has looked into several of them. One of them is neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to rewire itself. The brain yesterday is not what it is today, and it's not what it will be tomorrow. And why is that? Because of the interactions that our brain has had with the outside environment or thoughts we've had. That's what rewires the brain. Several Research centers have documented the formation of new neurons in aging human brains. That's called neurogenesis. And that happens every day of our lives. And it's not just a minor number of new neurons that are formed. We can form 25, 30, 40,000 new neurons a day. And these neurons not only live, but they integrate into neural networks and they become functional neurons. The combination of neuroplasticity and neurogenesis allows for the brain to build itself 
and renew itself on a day-to-day basis. And the way to think about this is using a computer analogy is that you are replacing your hard drive every day with a new hard drive, yet while the computer continues to function. So that's a great feat that the brain does. In combination with these new neurologic discoveries, I've approached the brain from a metabolic perspective. And what I mean by that is that in addition to being a thinking machine, the brain has to follow the living rules of nature, just like the heart, the kidney, the liver, and the other organs in the body, such as generating energy to do the tasks that it does. And I have integrated that with these other new neuroscientific findings as the template for the book. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Dr. Larry McCleary, author of the Brain Trust Program. Dr. McCleary, let's talk a little bit more about metabolism and the brain. What are some of the new insights that you provide in your book that help explore this relatively new perspective on the brain and brain health? As an example, Matt, one of the things that struck me was that Alzheimer's disease or other dementing illnesses are striking down increasing numbers of baby boomers and their parents. Every five years after age 65, Alzheimer's doubles. And that's an eye-opening statistic. We don't have a great tool that can diagnose Alzheimer's other than using symptom profiles or neurocognitive testing, which really is soft science in a way. So when I came across a study about a year ago looking at glucose metabolism in the brain, I was really struck by what it told us. And really what the study did was it did a PET scan which is a functional test of the brain that measures how efficiently it burns glucose on a group of people in their 30s who were neurologically normal but who had one gene that was a risk factor for the development of Alzheimer's disease. These people were then followed for about 40 years and the researchers saw who developed Alzheimer's disease after four decades and then they went back and they compared the patients who developed sick brains with the PET scan results. And what they saw was that in the brains of people in their 30s who were neurologically normal and then subsequently developed Alzheimer's, there were subtle abnormalities in glucose metabolism in the brain. Now, what that means is that four decades before a neurodegenerative disease develops, symptoms develop and it can be diagnosed, the brain is not handling glucose normally. That was interesting because another diagnosis or disease that is in epidemic proportions today is diabetes, and diabetes is associated with obesity. Both of those are risk factors for Alzheimer's. If you're diabetic, your risk of Alzheimer's disease quintuples. If you're pre-diabetic, it doubles or triples, and if you're pre-pre-diabetic, it doubles. So the clinical syndromes that are associated with abnormalities of insulin and glucose metabolism also impact the brain because when your body can't handle glucose appropriately, your risk of memory loss increases. And now we have evidence to suggest that the same thing's happening in the brain. And many of the parameters and factors and lifestyle traits that contribute to 
diabetes or prediabetes also are related to Alzheimer's. And what's, I think, very important is a lot of these are totally within our control. Diabetes is really a lifestyle disease, just like many of the risk factors for heart disease. We now have identified risk factors for Alzheimer's, and many of them are under our control. One last question, Dr. McCleary. How do we, as the listeners, find your book? You can find it at good bookstores anywhere. You can go online to Amazon.com, or you can order it through my website, www.drmccleary.com. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Pleasure being here. You've been listening to ReachMD XM157, highlighting the 2008 AMA Medical Communications Conference in San Diego. For questions and comments, or to access our library of interview podcasts, log on to ReachMD.com and register with the promo code RADIO. Thanks so much for listening.